0: Is coming. He carries a Colt forty five
1: for close range, a sawed off double barrel shotgun for wide coverage, a Winchester thirty thirty for rapid, endless firepower, and he carries a Sharps buffalo gun
0: for killing at fifteen hundred yards. Valdez carries enough equipment to stop an army because sometimes he has to. Burt. Lancaster is.
1: This is the Six-Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast, celebrating the blazing six gun action of the Western genre. I'm Paul Bishop, and riding Shotgun with me for episode 10 is my Six Gun Justice co host, Richard Prosh. Howdy, Rich. Tell us what the schedule is for to today. You bet, Paul.
0: A few episodes back, we had a great discussion comparing the two film versions of 310 to Yuma, which were based on a short story by Elmore Leonard, a man who cut his teeth writing westerns, and then went on to adapt the western form to a long list of best-selling modern crime novels. In today's feature, we'll be taking a closer look at the early western short stories and western novels of Elmore Leonard, the films made from them, and how he transitioned the western to the crime genre.
1: We are also going to change things up a bit by diving right into our feature, after which we'll be giving some quick reviews of what we've been reading and watching lately. Are you telling me to keep the chit-chat to a minimum? Giddy-up, cowboy. Let's hit him up and move him out. (laughs) Let's start off (laughs) with... uh,
0: (laughs) That's pretty good. Let's start off with Elmore Leonard's famous Rules for Writing.
1: You mean the ones that end with try to leave out the part that the readers tend to skip?
0: You just had to go there immediately, didn't you? Snatch my thunder right out from under me.
1: Maybe we should just move on and leave out the part that listeners tend to fast forward through.
0: Right. Leonard sage advice on writing was first published in the New York Times on July 16, 2001, in an essay entitled Easy on the Adverbs, Exclamation Points, and especially Hoop de Doodle. Because of its popularity, it's been reprinted as a small handbook that is available on Amazon. The rules are as follows. Number one, never open a book with weather. Number two, avoid prologues. Three, never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. Four, never use an adverb to modify the verb said he admonished gravely. Five, keep your exclamation points under control. You are allowed no more than two or three per 100,000 words of prose. Six, never use the words suddenly or all hell broke loose. Number seven, use regional dialect patois sparingly. Eight, avoid detailed descriptions of characters. Nine, don't go into great detail describing places and things. Ten, try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. Where I find the most fun with Leonard's rules is in the master's own prose. As a writer, you should always read for enjoyment first. That's the way these subconscious neurons work best at picking up the mechanics of good writing. But after you've done that, take the time to study a writer like Leonard just to see when he
1: followed his own rules and when and why he didn't. We'll have a chance to mention a few specific examples later in the show when we offer our rundowns on Leonard's best-known Westerns. How did he get started in writing anyway? Elmore Leonard claimed he
0: perfected his wordcraft by writing westerns, a genre he loved. Born in New Orleans, Louisiana, his father worked for General Motors, which meant the family moved frequently before finally settling in Detroit in 1934. After Leonard graduated from the University of Detroit Jesuit High School, he became a Navy Seabee, serving for three
1: years in the South Pacific, where he was nicknamed Dutch after pitcher Dutch Leonard. After being honorably discharged from the Navy, Leonard enrolled in the University of Detroit and began to pursue writing seriously. He entered short story contests and submitted stories to magazines. But his lack of immediate success forced him to keep his day job as a copywriter with an advertising agency while doing his own writing on the side. But there was no denying his talent. Leonard wrote westerns like he was a bastard son of Charles Portis and Sergio Leone. Inevitably, he finally broke into the fiction market in 1951, selling his short story, Trailer the Apaches, to the high-end pulp magazine, Argosy.
0: Building on this first professional sale, he continued writing Western short stories, eventually selling more than 30 of them by the early 1960s. He also began to find success writing lean, stripped-down Westerns for the paperback market, starting in 1953 with his first novel, The Bounty Hunters. The bounty hunters told the story of Soldado Viejo, an old Apache renegade hiding out in Mexico. The Arizona Department agent wants him hunted down and hires two men to do it, Dave Flynn, an experienced fighter and hunter, and a wet-behind-the-ears kid lieutenant named Bowers. What the men don't know is they are riding into the middle of an explosive situation where Soldado Viejo might be their only chance of getting out alive.
1: These early Western short stories and novels, Leonard began to find his voice as a writer. He had an ear for her culturally diverse speech patterns and blended them seamlessly with the unique speech cadence he naturally brought to his dialogue.
0: Leonard's Westerns are unmatched for their tight, muscular prose, razor-sharp characterizations, and outbursts of unexpected humor. He had a gift for delivering sheer, minimalistic narrative tension. His style drove readers inexorably forward from sentence to sentence, captivated by the inventive twists he created to resolve the classic tropes inherent to the genre. Anytime you read a Western by Elmore Leonard, you can tell there is a budding master at work. You really should pick up a copy of the complete Western short stories of Elmore Leonard from your favorite bookseller and just be prepared to be enthralled.
1: He began each day at 5 a.m., writing at his living room table, until he left for work at the Detroit Advertising Agency, where he was employed. While his desktop was given over to paperwork from various commercial accounts, he stole every spare moment to continue scribbling more lines for his stories on a yellow pad hidden inside his desk drawer. While his mind should have been on selling soap, or actually Chevrolet products, his imagination was instead filled with Queros, stagecoach drivers, apache raiding parties, cavalry units, dance hall girls, faro dealers, cowpunchers, weary lawmen, and bickering outlaws.
0: It was through writing these early tales about apaches, cavalry, and rustlers that Leonard developed his fondness for characters who were good, bad, and really bad. Unlike many pulp writers grinding out westerns, Leonard insisted on accuracy. He kept a running ledger of his research and would later credit his longtime subscription to Arizona Highways Magazine for many of his authentic descriptions. Like Louis L'Amour, everything Leonard put into his Westerns had to be genuine. The guns, the Apache terms and clothing, the frontier knives, card games, and especially the horses.
1: Westerns were the proving ground for Leonard's patented take on respectful but deadly rivals from both sides of the law. They were also where he would develop the trademark quirky characters he would recreate in his future Western-tinged contemporary crime novels. Scenes of failed bank jobs, other criminal schemes gone awry, fallouts between villains with little honor, questionable loyalties, and accumulated regrets. Another
0: fingerprint from his Westerns to transfer to his crime novels was the mysterious woman who turns up unexpectedly, or a man with a sketchy background on which the plot hinges. In his Westerns, the woman might have been abducted by Indians only to be returned to a life she no longer recognizes, or a man who is denying his Mexican heritage by passing as an Apache. Leonard had a fascination with these outsiders, whose inner motives and emotions are kind of difficult to fathom.
1: There's an example of this in The Tonto Woman, in which Leonard gives us a woman taken by the Indians who has returned only to be banished by her rancher husband to live alone in a cabin because of the evidence of her Indian experience that's tattooed on her face.
0: Leonard was partial to setting his stories in Arizona and New Mexico, where the cultures of Apache, Mexican, and Anglo cultures collide. He felt the zeitgeist gave his plots a three-sided conflict, which he believed offered more depth and opportunity than a simple two-way fight on the
1: plains. It was Leonard's mentor, sports writer and novelist W.C. Heinz, who after reading one of Leonard's westerns sent him a letter stating, I would like you to work at developing character through conversation. Each person talks differently and so defines himself. You must be able to hear and see each character as he talks. It was a vice Leonard would take to heart. Delving deeper into the influence of Leonard's
0: westerns, the obvious starting point is two of his best-known short stories. 310 to Yuma was originally published in an issue of Dime Western in 1953. The Captives appeared in Argosy in 1957. Both of these pulps were fertile ground for hungry filmmakers. Both stories were optioned in 1957 and went on to become two of the most memorable westerns of the 1950s. The Captives became the Tall Tee in 1957, brought to vivid life by Randolph Scott and director Bud Bedeker in the second film of their iconic renowned Cycle. The Tall Tee tells the tale of ramrod-turned-rancher Pat Brennan, portrayed by Randolph Scott, and copper mine heiress Doretta Mims, played by Maureen O'Sullivan, who are held captive by a sly stagecoach bandit, Richard Boone, and his thick-witted cohorts. There's an unusual but believable twist when the bandit refrains from killing Brennan, primarily because, after spending so much time with his oafish underlings, he's desperate for intelligent conversation. The great thing about Richard Boone, Leonard recalled, is that he said his lines exactly the way I heard them in my head when I wrote the story. He did the same thing ten years later when he appeared in the movie based on my book Ombre.
1: There is a lonely train called at three Well, that was a little bit of the great Frankie Lane singing the theme song from 310 to Yuma, which starred Glenn Ford, deliberately playing against type as Leonard's conflicted anti-hero, the outlaw Ben Wade. Van Heflin played the seemingly ineffectual farmer hiding an iron will, a man who refuses to be intimidated and never veers from his responsibility to put the outlaw on the train of the title. Ford's performance captured the subtle yearnings of the ruthless, somewhat sociopathic Wade's realization that as poor as Van Heflin's farmer character was monetarily, he was far richer than Wade would ever be through his connections to family and to the land, which probably explains Wade's changing motives at the climax of the film. However, before these two much better known early adaptations of
0: Leonard's westerns, there was a small screen adaptation of his western short story, Moment of Vengeance the tale of a ranch hand out to win his hard-bitten cattle-baron
1: father-in-law's forgiveness for marrying his daughter. Debuting as an episode of Schlitz Playhouse of the Stars on CBS in 1956, Moment of Vengeance starred Ward Bond as the cattle baron, Lane Bradford as a spinton ranch hand, and, deep sigh, Angie Dickinson as what else the object of everyone's affection. She did have that effect on a lot of people, including me. She certainly did. Even John Wayne wasn't immune to her charms if Rio Bravo is anything to go by. She was definitely a real cowgirl,
0: guest starring on many of the top Western TV series, including Death Valley Days, Buffalo Bill Jr., Reckless Gun, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, Gunsmoke, Cheyenne, Have Gun Will Travel, Tombstone Territory, Colt 45, Wagon Train, and Heck Ramsey.
1: And don't forget all the Western films she was in, such as Tennessee's Partner, Man with a Gun with Robert Mitchum, Return of Jack Slade, Hidden Guns, Tension at Table Rock, Gun the Man Down with a pre-Gunsmoke James R. Ness, Broken Arrow, The Black Whip, Shootout at Medicine Bend with Randolph Scott, Run of the Arrow, Rio Bravo with John Wayne, of course, and Young Billy Young with Robert Mitchum again. Man, it sounds
0: like we need to do a whole Angie Dickinson episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast.
1: I'm so there. It would probably be our highest-rated show.
0: But back to this episode in Elmore Leonard. A year after the bounty hunters hit the spinner racks, Leonard's second Western novel, The Law at Randado, was published. It begins with wealthy cattle baron Phil Sundine dangerously underestimating Deputy Sheriff Kirby Fry. Sundine sees Fry as a green local kid with a tin badge and nothing to back it up. When Sundine's men drag two prisoners from Fry's jail, and hang them from a high tree, they beat and humiliate the untried young lawman in the process. But if it's one thing Leonard's heroes all possess, it is grit, and Kirby's got it in spades. Sundin and his hired muscle have money, fear, and guns on their side, but Kirby Fry is the law in his godforsaken patch of the Arizona territories. If doing his job means dragging Sundin and his killers straight to the gates of hell,
1: you have no doubt they need to start packing their bags. Following close on the heels of the Lot Rendado was Leonard's next western, Escape from Five Shadows. It's the story of Corey Bowen, an innocent man framed and imprisoned in the brutal labor camp at Five Shadows, who is determined to escape at any cost. Beaten, bloody, and nearly killed after his last attempt, Bowen finds an unexpected ally, a mysterious woman, with her own deadly agenda. Like so many of Elmer Leonard's heroes, Bowen is a different breed. And once he's out, He'll find freedom isn't enough without payback.
0: 1967's Ombre set Paul Newman on the path to the superstardom he achieved in the 1970s. He plays a white man raised by the Apaches and an outcast to both societies. When the stagecoach he's riding on is waylaid by bandits led by a wolfish Richard Boone, the passengers who scorned him must now turn to him for help. Ombre was one of six films Newman made with director Martin Ritt, and it gets Leonard's endorsement as his personal favorite among the movies adapted from his works. And the film became iconic, complete with melancholy music and those sepia opening credits. It's interesting to me because I don't think the novel necessarily lends itself to that. Leonard was writing an honest story as he saw it, and I don't think he was deliberately trying to push convention, say, as with a Brian Garfield sliphammer or Piccadilly cowboy entry. Paul, we opened this feature talking about Leonard's rules for writing, so I wanted to note that with Ombre, he pushes two of those rules right to the edge. He says avoid prologues, and Ombre sort of does, but also sort of doesn't, depending on how you classify the opening of the book with Carl Everett Allen recounting the series of events that began on August 12, 1884. Leonard's rules also warn writers to avoid detailed descriptions of characters, but Leonard ignores his own rule by giving the reader not one, but two vivid descriptions of the man known as hombre, John Russell. However, there's a reason he does this, drawing the reader's attention to a contrast in the way the character first appears and how he presents himself after getting cleaned up a bit. It's a device to show the
1: character's actions without explicitly showing the action. I really enjoyed Ombre, but I consider Leonard's next western, Valdez is Coming, as a brilliant culmination of all the talents he had honed in the western genre. Here he gives us Bob Valdez, a Mexican-American constable with little authority other than hurting drunks. When Valdez, played by Burt Lancaster in the movie version, is forced by the actions of wealthy Anglo landowner Frank Kanner to kill a man, the beginnings of a slow, burning rage ignite. Appearing somewhat naive, Valdez seeks a minimal compensation for the dead man's widow. In the face of Valdez's calm determination, Tanner orders his fronties to brutally beat and humiliate the Asian constable, before lashing him to a cross and leaving him helpless to die in the desert. If you don't know where this is going by now, you haven't been paying attention. Tanner and his men are about to pay the price for their unfeeling arrogance. But, and this is a huge but, Leonard has something up his sleeve which makes Valdez's coming unique in the genre. A violent western without a final gunfight, yet delivering a satisfying and very human outcome. Leonard was amazed when the movie premiered. I was surprised they were able to get away with the ending, Leonard said. I mean, there's no final gunfight between Valdez and Tanner. Even the studio couldn't believe it. But they let director Edwin Sherin do it anyway. Most people know that the film version of Valdez is Coming is based on the novel, but did you know the novel is actually based on one of Leonard's short stories? I came across it while reading through the complete Western stories of Elmore Leonard. It appeared in that collection as Saint with a Six-Gun, but its original title was The Hanging of Bobby Valdez. So in that sense, it sits right next to The Captives and 310 from Yuma. I will add, the character in that short story, even though he is named Bob Valdez, doesn't exactly match up with the character in the book, but it's certainly where the seed of the idea came from.
0: It would be Leonard himself who wrote an original script for his next Western, Joe Kidd, a straight-up Western actioner anchored by Clint Eastwood as the title character. My biggest question about Joe Kidd, however, is why there was never an accompanying novelization written for that film. Two years later, Mr. Majestic would also be filmed from an original screenplay by Leonard, but he went on to write his own novelization of the script, which was published the same year. So why not Joe Kidd? Production of Joe Kidd was somewhat problematic, with Leonard continuing to rewrite the script on the fly due to the demands of director John Sturgis. But as Leonard puts it, that didn't help the film at all. Eastwood plays the trademark Leonard anti-hero, switches sides in the middle of a dispute between a villainous railroad baron played by Robert Duvall, and the Mexican peasants who live on the land the railroad is determined to take from them. While the movie only partially overcame its production obstacles, Leonard had only praise for Duvall's performance, stating, I don't think Duvall could ever give a bad performance. He always becomes the character, and he makes it look so easy. But why no novel for Joe Kid, Paul? I googled that, as they say, and did a pretty comprehensive search all over the internet, and there just is no novel, apparently.
1: I agree. It's really kind of strange because Leonard, you would have thought, would have been encouraged to do that novelization, too, just as he was with Mr. Majestic. But there you have it, something tied up with a right somewhere, and it never got written. I always wanted to know why there was never a tie-in novel for The Magnificent Seven, so I want one of those before we get one of Joe Kidd, okay? (laughs) I agree. You mentioned the novelization of Mr. Majestic, which brings up a question of my own. Am I the only one who considers Mr. Majestic a Western? To me, this tale of a war veteran turned Arizona melon farmer who decides to fight back after losing everything at the hands of the local mob is really an updated take on Valdez's coming. Like Valdez, Vince Majestic, played in the film version by Charles Bronson, is a quiet man, quietly going about his business as a hard-working nobody, and seemingly quietly content with his lot. But inside that quiet persona is a deeply repressed killing machine that won't be pushed. Majestic is hiding behind the veneer of a farmer in an effort to leave his past atrocities behind. In reality, he's a former U.S. Army Ranger instructor, a Vietnam War veteran, and an ex-con. He's a man who knows to survive, means to attack with force and fury, and never back down. He's a streak of white-hot vengeance, about to be unleashed on the local cattle baron. I mean, mob boss. How is this not a Western?
0: You've sold me. Unfortunately, I guess like my question about the lack of a Joe Kidd novel, it's something we won't be finding answers for today.
1: In other words, keep writing and don't ask difficult questions.
0: As you put it, writing on brings us to 40 Lashes Less One, a novel taking readers into the hell called Yuma Territorial Prison. It's a place that can destroy the soul of any man, but for those whose biggest crime is the color of their skin, it makes death a welcome lover. There were no protests or cries of Black Lives Matter when the novel was written in 1972, but clearly Leonard was aware of the appalling treatment of blacks and Native Americans on the western frontier. Sadly, the human indignities and inequalities laid bare in the novel are still with us today. Forty Lashes Less 1 matches convicted murderers Raymond San Carlos, a Chiricahua Apache, and former black soldier Harold Jackson, who are at first enemies, then allies by necessity, against Arizona's five most dangerous men in a violent contest on a bloody trail winding toward redemption. It's one of Leonard's most powerful novels, with a resonance ringing across the
1: generations. Not to do a dudley Do right and ride backward, but like Mr. Majestic, Cuba Libre is most often considered another of Leonard's gritty crime novels. This perception comes from the way it was marketed. By 1988, when Cuba Libre was published, Leonard was an established bestseller, an acknowledged master of the crime genre. Throwing out a new novel from Leonard marketed as a Western would have created numerous problems, including where the book should be shelved in the bookstores. The publisher wanted it next to Leonard's other crime novels, not languishing in a bookstore's tiny and hard-to-find Western section. The novel is an ingenious cake mix of historical adventure, caper novel, and Western, all topped with a delicious noir frosting. Set in 1898, it features Leonard's typically quirky outsider in the guise of an American horse wrangler who escapes a date with a Cuban firing squad, only to join forces with a powerful sugar baron's lady bent on turning the chaos of the Spanish-American war-torn area of Havana into an opportunity for another typical Leonard trope, the big score. It may be dressed up as a crime novel, but strip away the marketing misdirection and Cuba Libre is pure six-gun shoot-'em-up. Make no mistake, if you love Leonard's westerns, you'll love Cuba Libre.
0: Based on his 1959 novel, Last Stand at Saber River, the 1997 made-for-TV movie of the same name is arguably the best of a number of similar outings starring charismatic Tom Selleck. Here he plays Paul Cable, a quiet, haunted man who walked away from the Civil War and the lost cause of the Confederacy. He just wanted to pick up where he left off. But things have changed in Arizona since he first rode out to war. Two brothers who fought for the Union have taken over his spread, and they're not about to give it back, leaving Cable and his family no place to settle in peace. But Cable has given up on one lost cause. Nobody's going to take away his land and his future. Laws, lies, or guns be damned. There's a good scene in the book where, once again, Leonard breaks his own rules for writing. If you know the story, you know the character of Janro is a Confederate firebrand. Though the war is pretty much over and done, he's still a true believer, still running guns for the South with unassailable fervor. This in direct contrast to Cable, who's been there and done that, and like his wife, is so over the whole thing. In the narrative, when Cable first sits down with Janro, Leonard employs those forbidden adjectives to the word said. Cable speaks patiently. He says things calmly and quietly, while Genro gazes intently, etc. It's a great device to make the reader unconsciously note the difference between the two characters in just a short couple paragraphs.
1: Leonard had begun his climb up the bestseller list with his gritty crime novels, but in 1979, he returned to the Western genre with gunsights. I guess he figured his publisher was going to put it out one way or the other. In this novel... Leonard also returns for another take on his favorite theme of pitting dangerous men who were once friends against each other. Brendan Early and Dana Moon tracked renegade Apaches together and gunned down scalp hunters to become Arizona legends. But what the newspapers are calling the Rincon Mountain War has put them on opposite sides of right and wrong. Brendan and a gang of mining company gun thugs are dead set on running Dana and the people of the mountain from their land, While the setup is a traditional trope, the characters are well-defined, and Leonard keeps the action and the gunfights blazing from beginning to end, making the plot kind of a moot point. In
0: 1987, Leonard wrote Desperado, an original script featuring the character Duel McCall, an innocent man on the run from a murder charge. The title was inspired by the 1973 Eagles hit Desperado, performed by Linda Ronstadt. Apparently, Ronstadt's version was far too expensive to license, so Eagles lead singer Don Henley took on the vocal chores for the version used as the movie's theme music. For the project, Leonard joined forces with producer Walter Mirisch, a man known for his golden touch with westerns, to convince NBC bigwig Brandon Tarkatov to finance the project. The TV movie was intended to serve as the pilot for a weekly TV series, and Alex MacArthur was cast as the half-brooding, half-smoldering
1: hero. When the script opens, McCall is roaming the West in search of the witness who can clear his name. Being a good bad boy, he can't turn away from someone in need. As a result, he quickly finds himself caught in the middle of a deadly frontier mining town feud, while inadvisably falling in love with a local girl. All of which sounds like a typical Leonard setup for blazing Western action with some dangerous twists. While Desperado received excellent reviews and ratings, a weekly series never materialized. Instead, a series of four further Desperado TV movies, none of which were written by Leonard, were commissioned by NBC. I have no doubt the popularity and recognizability of the hit Eagles tune played a big part in keeping the Desperado franchise viable.
0: The Return of Desperado, Desperado, Avalanche at Devil's Ridge, Desperado, The Outlaw Wars, and Desperado, Badlands Justice aired over the next two years. But by the end of Badlands Justice, McCall had still not been able to clear his name, leading fans to anticipate further installments, but none were forthcoming, partly because Universal, which was making money off distributing the franchise to foreign movie theaters, believed they could continue to make enough money with the package of five outweigh the expenditure for making any more.
1: So Desperado still hasn't come to his senses and is still out riding fences. Yeah, you just had to go there, didn't you? Sometimes I just can't help myself. (laughs)
0: desperado we won't sing (laughs) from what i understand this next film makes desperado look like an oscar winner i've never seen the sequel to the gary cooper classic 1952 movie high noon which would be 1981's high noon part two the ripe smell of roadkill is unmistakable
1: and what an original title i wonder who thought it up
0: well the title may not be original but the movie does boast an original screenplay from elmore leonard And as you point out, the title High Noon Part 2 is pretty bland. It was granted the subtitle, The Return of Will Kane. As you can tell from the title, former sheriff Will Kane returns to Hadleyville for the first time in years since facing down the villainous Frank Miller, while his pretty bride nags and bitches at him before having to save his ass at the end of the original movie. Kane finds Hadleyville hasn't changed much from its days when nobody wanted to get involved, The town folks have wimped out again and they're now caught in the grip of a bounty hunting marshal named J.D. Ward and his two gun-happy deputies. This delightful trio is pursuing Ben Irons, a drifter who's wanted dead or alive for a crime he didn't commit. When Irons asks ex-Sheriff Will Kane to help him, the stage is set for another major gunfight within the town.
1: Does his wife save his ass again? Wait, don't tell me. I've got to check this out for myself. I am, however, assuming that despite having a script from the master... The execution of the film didn't have the critics raving. It was a made-for-TV movie, if that tells you something about the quality. It starred Lee Majors in the Gary
0: Cooper role, which probably tells you a whole lot more. figure in David Carradine, Pernell Roberts, and Emmett Walsh, evidently also complicit in taking money under false pretenses. And an internet movie database rating of about 5 stars out of 10. I think you can put together where this 90-minute movie stands on the Richter scale of knocking your socks off.
1: Hey, you're supposed to be the straight man. I'm supposed to get the laughs.
0: (laughs) Is that what you call those grunts from the audience?
1: And moving on again. In 1990, Leonard's Western story, Law at Randando, became the basis for the Western Action border shootout. In one of his last film appearances, Glenn Ford plays an aging, unpopular Arizona sheriff transporting a dangerous criminal to federal prison. Ford leaves the town in the hands of part-time deputy Cody Glenn. Raised in belief that honesty is the best policy, Glenn is ill-equipped to deal with a gang of cattle rustlers. He must also contend with the lynch fever being stirred up by the local troublemaker, and unfortunately, the haphazard direction of C.T. McIntyre turned a solid story on the page to a disaster on the screen.
0: Any discussion of Elmore Leonard's westerns has to include a look at his 2010 modern-day neo-western TV series Justified, which ran for six
1: seasons. U.S. Marshal Ryland Givens had already appeared in two novels, *Pronto* and Riding the Rap*, before being turned loose in Leonard's 2001 novella Fire in the Hole. Set in modern western Kentucky, Fire in the Hole revealed Ryland as a unique character sparked the catalyst for Justified, a series which I believe is just as important to the continuing longevity of the westerns as Leonard's early westerns were. The opening sentences of Fire in the Hole quickly draw the lines of conflict. They had dug coal
0: together as young men and then lost touch over the years. Now it looked like they'd be meeting again, this time as lawman and felon. Rayland Givens, and Boyd Crowder. In this one, Leonard arguably tosses his rule about using regional dialect and patois sparingly. For instance, Boyd calls Cincinnati Cincy and spares no ethnicity in his use of racial slurs and cultural dark jargon. But by doing so, Leonard instantly nails the character of Boyd Crowder into your psyche. And honestly, he does it so well, I had trouble ever seeing Boyd as
1: anything but a bastard... As a post-Western, Justify consciously draws on the traditional genre conventions in order to reinvent them. The premise laid out in those opening sentences of Fire in the Hole are so clean and clear, they allow for all the complexities of the involved characters to respond freely to every unexpected plot twist. There's no clutter to get in the way as Givens and Crowder, the cop and the crook, once strong friends but now mortal enemies, maneuver into a position for a last glorious inevitable showdown.
0: Ryland is a direct descendant of the Western heroes created by Louis L'Amour, Gordon Sheriffs, and Louis B. Patton. He's the fastest gun in the West, the East, or anywhere else, fast enough to draw and shoot first against any man, even one who already has his gun in his hand. And it's this draw ability that declares him as a recognizable
1: Western hero. He might not live in the historical West, but Ryland's approach to the job is to channel Marshal Dillon and embrace the code of the West. He has no qualms about challenging criminals to duels in the street nor does he find anything anachronistic about giving a drug boss 24 hours to get out of town, or in this case, the county. This unwavering belief in himself as a kind of frontier figure turns Ryland into the target of dangerous criminals who resent his inability to bend or be bought and makes him a pain in the saddle to his boss in the U.S. Marshal Service. However, this inner fantasy also allows Ryland to do his very dangerous job, and if the image ever shatters, he's dead.
0: And those aren't the only tropes that make justify a Western. The casting of Timothy Oliphant as Rylan brings with it the echo of Oliphant's earlier character, Seth Bullock, in Deadwood, and connects the characters by matching their signature clothing, the Stetson, the cowboy boots, and gun holstered at the hip.
1: In another allusion to Deadwood, there's a nice scene in an early episode when Rylan meets up with old friend and new enemy, Boyd Crowder, and they toss back a shot glass of moonshine together. This is an obvious recreation of a similar scene in Deadwood between Oliphant's character, Seth Bullock, and Al Swearingen, played by Ian McShane, a character interchangeable in intent and outlook with that of Boyd Crowder.
0: And when another Deadwood actor, Gerald McRaney, shows up in Justified as Josiah Cairn, his opening dialogue with Rylan is almost verbatim to that of their characters on Deadwood. Oh, come on, man. I haven't forgotten you. Made an impression, did I? You could say that, that bullshit you tried pulling after the mine explosion in 85, taking money from the widows to try to prove it was the mine's fault, then taking money from the mine to try to cover it up. The lines play perfectly despite their chronologic timelines being decades apart.
1: There are even Western touches you might not consciously register, such as a large tombstone movie poster hanging on the office wall of Ryland's boss, or a vehicle registered to Baxter-Hawley Construction. Baxter and Holly being names of the dastardly wagon train leaders in the film Silverado. It's all of these things put together that testifies to the series' hyper awareness of its Western roots. The show did an
0: outstanding job of capturing Leonard's trademark gallows humor, his vividly drawn bad guys of varying intelligence, and his portrayals of self deprecating lawmen, all of which give credence to Leonard ranking Justified as the best page to screen adaptation of his work ever undertaken. He also heaped praise on Timothy Oliphant and Walter Goggins, who portrayed Ryland Givens and Boyd Crowder as the kind of
1: guys I saw when I wrote their lines. Leonard is now revered by readers and writers around the world, but it all started with his westerns. Those early six gun sagas are where he developed his clean prose style, matured his uncanny ear for realistic dialogue, learned the effective use of violence came to understand how to apply his unforced satiric wit and discovered the endless parade of colorful characters that populated his imagination. With their vibrant settings
0: and twisting plots, Leonard's westerns gave him free range to ride the landscape of the essential American myth of a moral struggle working itself out against a dangerous,
1: morally ambiguous frontier. I have to tell you, I had a blast reading a bunch of Elmore Leonard westerns back-to-back and watching some of the films we talked about in preparation for this episode, but I also found time to fill in another gap in my western genre education. I hope I don't have to turn in my Six-Gun Justice podcast decoder ring when I tell you I recently watched Silverado for the first time. What? For the first time? Come on, no movie shaming allowed. While it wasn't a great film, it was certainly a fun film, and I had a blast watching it. Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote and directed and produced the film, and probably cleaned up after the elephants went by, was still clearly in his Indiana Jones mode. In fact, the film plays like it's a version of Indiana Jones out west, but that's not a bad thing. While Silverado is not a comedy, neither is it a serious western, like those we've been talking about from Elmer Leonard. It's a big-budget, fun romp harking back to the all-star, big-budget westerns of the 50s and 60s. Kevin Kline, Scott Glenn, and Danny Glover as three of our four heroes chew enough scenery between them to come back as beavers in the next life. However, Brian Dennehy, as a crooked sheriff, practically makes their performances Shakespearean. But I tell you, it's Kevin Costner who steals the movie as the irresponsible young gunslinger who never speaks when hooting and hollering will do. If you watch him closely, you can see so much of what he does is improvised. It's instinctual and it shows the genius that will emerge in his future roles. And before I turn it over to you, I've got to mention I finished Dead Time, the third book in the Hank Fallon series following Humor Prison Crash Out and Behind the Iron. These are published under the William Johnston banner, which means there is no indication of who the real author is. And I have to say that's a shame, because this trilogy is one of the best I've ever read from the stable of authors writing for the Western genre juggernaut that is the William Johnston brand. I'm bugged because I really, really, really want to know who the writer is behind this particular non-disclosure agreement. There is a fourth book in the series, A Knife to the Heart, due in September, and I've already got my pre-order in. Okay, with my picks out of the way, what have you been reading or watching, Rich, that you found of interest since our last episode?
0: I've been catching up on the Tom Marsh series from one of Wolfpack's most prolific authors, John Rose Putnam. The White Stallion is book seven, and it was just released this month for Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. There are already six Tom Marsh adventures, beginning with Hangtown Creek. It's in the second volume, Face of the Devil, that the love of Tom's life, Lacey Lawson, enters, and things really kind of take off from there. From then on, Tom Marsh Adventures might more properly be called Tom and Lacey Marsh Adventures. The chemistry between the two is great, and though I haven't read anything in between, I didn't feel like I had missed anything when I just picked up book seven. So, to my mind, the different stories can stand alone in that respect. In The White Stallion, Tom and Lacey are eager to start a horse ranch west of the Sierra Nevada mountains, but they need stock. When a battered wagon helmed by desperate travelers interrupt their breakfast one morning, their immediate plans change. Armed with a Navy Colt and Big Boar Sharps rifle, Tom, Lacey, and their man, Miguel, pursue the kidnappers, only to be interrupted by violence and a magnificent white stallion. The stallion would be an ideal sire to start a herd, and that sort of represents Tom and Lacey's future. But can they capture the stallion and still rescue the infant that was kidnapped? It's sort of a nail-biter, Paul, and I'd recommend our listeners pick it up and catch the exciting conclusion. I also quickly want to recommend one of John's other series, The Roy Martin Mysteries, a contemporary laid-back sheriff series that reminded me of Bill Kreider's Dan Rhodes series. Our listeners can learn more about John Rose Putnam and his books and both of those series in an exclusive interview just posted to our website at www.sixgunjustice.com.
1: Well, partner, that's the clanging of the chuck wagon triangle telling us to wrap this episode up with our shootouts and shoutouts.
0: Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor.
1: Thanks also to the Western Writers of America's Roundup magazine for their support in getting the word about the Six-Gun Justice podcast spread around.
0: Thanks to our crew of Patreon backers for their financial support. If you're enjoying the podcast, please check out the Six-Gun Justice Patreon page and consider giving a monthly stipend to help us keep moseying along.
1: There is also a one-time donation button on the Six-Gun Justice website. If you can afford to drop a carrot or an apple in the feed bag, rest assured it goes directly toward upgraded sound equipment along with recording and hosting fees.
0: Donations are appreciated, but clearly not expected or at all necessary. We're grateful for all our listeners and truly happy to just have you sharing the
1: trail ride with us. Next Monday, I'll be hosting a Six-Gun Justice Speed Listen featuring everything you need to know about Northwesterns. Those Westerns set north of the border in Canada with Mounties chasing bad guys. And in two weeks, Paul and I will be back with Episode
0: 11 of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast podcast, when we'll be taking a look at Western TV
1: tie-in novels. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep your stall mucked out. Adios! We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by Wolfpack Publishing. Bringing you the best of the West, including the Avenging Angels and Gunslinger series by A.W. Hart and many other best selling Westerns, available on Amazon in ebook and paperback.